okay out there? Yeah? The end of the first day, so you've made it for 24 hours. And probably for a number of you, I actually know that for a number of you it hasn't been any too easy. It's been perhaps a little swampy like we talked about last night. And there probably have been more than once when you've felt a little lost and confused. Even Probably even those of you who've done retreats before and who thought you knew what you were getting into. And sometimes... I certainly have the experience often when I sit and I've sat a lot of retreats and I, at the end of the first day and I'm thinking, what am I doing? What is this? This is insane. You know, No person in their right mind would do this. But here we are and trying to find that right mind, I guess. So last night we um, talked a bit and we took refuge, and I would imagine that today you probably, you know, are really feeling like you need a refuge, a place in which to rest, not only from your lives at home, but possibly also from the challenges of the retreat. And, um, and we do need a refuge. And one of the images that always comes for me when I think of refuge is one that comes from the big island of Hawaii where I live some of the time. And um, some years ago I was visiting there and a friend took me, a friend who lives on the Kona side, took me to see this most amazing event that happens every evening at sunset on the beach. And um, we went down and walked out on the lava rocks and we came to this place where there was a really big tide pool that may be as big as this empty floor right in front of me and um, she said now watch and just as the sun began to really go down in came one of those great big honu the sea turtles that lived there and then a second one came and then a third and then an eighth and then a twelfth and and they began to sort of stack up on top of each other. And it's apparently their habit to come into this tide pool at night as a place where they can rest and where they can feed on the seaweed and where they're safe. It's a refuge. So, you know, look around at your fellow Honu here. We're all sea turtles and we're all smart enough to know, you know, to come to a place like this for a time of refuge. And how we talked last night about refuge in awakening, in that process of awakening in our own mind, and refuge in the truth of our experience, and, and then refuge in the community of those who seek awakening and truth. And so I think of that often as refuge in, in that in our nature which is available to wake up over and over and over again. So that in the end, perhaps we're always waking up, one moment after another. But it's not that you get waked up and you stay that way. I think that's an erroneous view, actually. It's more that we're constantly available to wake up, which means that we constantly have to let go of where we were before. And so often... What is true is that 
we aren't awake. We aren't. We get caught in the suffering of our daily lives and our stories and dramas of how things are and how they ought to be. And this place of being lost and caught in our suffering is exactly the place that the Buddha addressed. And he said, as I think I mentioned last night, he said, I come to teach about the nature of suffering and I come to teach the ending of suffering. So this sounds pretty good, you know, the ending of suffering, freedom and liberation and and the ending of all of the battles and struggles that most of us carry on all of the time, all of the wars. And, you know, I think of the ending of suffering, I certainly think of the ending of war, of the big kinds of war that that countries indulge in. But, you know, we're all going to war all the time, aren't we, with ourselves and with each other. And um, we carry them on day after day. So here you are at Spirit Rock, and probably after a day, really a beautiful day here, you know, with the sun and the sky and the coolness. And, and it, you see that it is a place of peace. And you've, I'm sure, could sense it today, you know, the quiet hills and these amazing, unfrightened animals. Isn't it astounding? You know, those turkeys and the deer, and, and they're just willing for you to be there. They, human beings are just part of their scene, and they don't run when they see us. And people moving about, some of you moving about as you go to and fro in the activities of the retreat, some of them staff people who are moving about their business, but everything's, it's a bit, it's very quiet and very unhurried and really wonderful and a very, very good place where we can slow down in these next days and turn inward to see what is true in this body, mind, heart complex that we call ourselves. But, as Howie pointed out with his reading last night, we are usually caught in this very hectic pace of fear that we live in, the endless busyness of our lives. So here's another reading, this one's from Diana Winston about that kind of speed. She wrote it a few years ago, so I've, added, I've updated it a little. You'll probably catch it. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously. I'm so tired. Please, somebody, you've got to help me stop. How can I even keep track of the multitude of information from TV, newspapers, dailies, weeklies, alternative journals, web, email, Facebook, tweeting, snail mail, radio, what my friends say, posters, flyers, billboards, advertisements, magazines, books, bookstore windows, dreams. Here we go, can't stop now, spinning, careening wildly out of control, got to make that date, got to invent something new, got to go, can't explain now, got to check my website, got to check my Facebook page, over here, over there, where, no, it's not fun anymore, on to the next, better, newer, happier, yes, this is it, got it, 
no, it's not quite it. Wait, there must be more. Makes me tired to read that. And probably at the end of the first day of sitting, you see just how hard it is to stop. Have you stopped? Probably not, I would imagine, for most of us. At least not completely. And, you know, we had, we had that wonderful question this morning about how quickly the mind moves off the breath over and over again, no matter how many times you put it back there. And we see, particularly at this point in the retreat, how endlessly the mind digresses as we sit on the cushion or walk on the paths. And, you know, we just carry so much with us in our contemporary culture and we are often exhausted by our lives and we yearn to put that burden down. So here is a great piece of advice. It's one that I have loved ever since I heard it. And it's one that you could probably, if you had a pen right now, you could write it down on the palm of your hand, you know, and then you'd have it with you for the rest of your retreat. But you probably don't even need that. You can remember it just from what I say. This is what Ajahn Buddhadasa said. He said, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. That's it. There's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. So we slow down, and as we mentioned yesterday, you may be finding that you've come to the garbage dump for your retreat. And everything that you've been avoiding has started to come in, the grief and the anger and the fear and the anxiety, or maybe even something that's sometimes scarier, which is the potential for joy and happiness. There's a great story from the Goenka retreats um, of of somebody's first retreat And he went, like probably some of you, not really knowing what he was going to get into. And at those retreats, um, because they're very clearly in the lineage of Goenka, um, they play videos of Goenka himself giving instruction sometimes. And so the first night came and they played the video. And our friend was sitting there listening carefully. And he heard Goenka say, notice your desperation. And he thought, how did he know? How did, and he felt so seen and welcomed and it was okay to be desperate. You know, it's not usually too okay to be desperate. And he went to bed later and he thought, wow, that's really great. You know, I, I, I guess, you know, I can look at my desperation. And, and it just felt so welcoming and And he was so happy to be at the retreat. And then he went back into the hall, you know, the next morning. And and since it was early on in the retreat, just the first morning of the first day, they played the instruction tape again. And so Goenka was giving the instructions. And then our friend realized that what Goenka, in his Indian accent, had said was, notice your respiration. But, you know, it didn't matter too much at that point. He had noticed his desperation. (laughs) And 
he was moving on into the retreat. So the Buddha himself was catapulted into his first period of practice when he had the experience of going into the village near the palace where he lived with his family and he saw someone who was very old and someone who was very sick and someone who was dying. He also saw a monk walking through amidst all of that and he was very, very astounded by all of these things. Now, this is what often brings all of us to practice, are these experiences of sickness, old age, and death, or sometimes being exposed to someone who lives in a completely different lifestyle. And we begin to want to wake up, to move towards something different. And he got very, the Buddha got very interested in the stress of our lives and in the way in which, for most of us, our lives never seem to arrive at any place of real happiness and freedom and how we cycle around over and over and over um, through suffering. And he noticed that we so often want things to be different from the way that they are and that this clinging or an attachment to things being different from the way that they are is what causes us enormous stress and dissatisfaction. He called this dukkha, dukkha. And this, this wanting things to be different, this clinging and the suffering that comes from it are actually the first two of what are known as the four noble truths, which are the teachings that are foundational to Buddhist practice. And then in the third and the fourth of these truths, he says that we can in fact learn to let go and we can do that, we can let go using most particularly the eightfold path of wise understanding and intention, action, speech, livelihood, the wise use of effort, mindfulness itself, and concentration. And he said, when we let go, when we, when we work with these, then we can find some freedom, some liberation from suffering. And over and over again, this is a path that we can work and walk and over and over again find the freedom that is available in any particular moment. So here, as you're sitting and walking and being with the retreat, we often as I said earlier, encounter the places of stress and discomfort in our lives. And so today, maybe it was your body, you know, your knees, your hips, your back, your shoulders, your neck, whatever. I might have missed a place or two, but, you know, they hurt. Or maybe it's your heart, you know, the sadness and grief of your heart. Or maybe it's your mind and the agitation and contraction and confusion of the mind. Or maybe it's all of them. You know. So this list of there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's no one to be, can be very, very helpful in assisting us to let go. We're often utterly obsessed with going somewhere, doing something, anything, especially anything rather than sitting on the cushion for another hour, or being someone. And usually we like to be someone who's in charge or in control. Um, 
But when we give it our attention, we begin to see that all this going and doing and being someone actually causes nothing but more suffering. So let's look at each one of them. So nothing to do. Kabir says, in a lovely poem, he says, don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. So we are constantly doing, going outside to do something, endlessly, as Diana described with the email and the blogs and the Facebook and the TV. And we're kind of obsessed with this doing and with acquisition and, you know, how many, I was thinking as I wrote this this afternoon, how many catalogs have I received this season? It'd be interesting to count them someday before I put them into the recycle bin just to see how many. There've got to be about 10 that come in every day, you know. And we don't rest. We don't rest. I'll bet some of you found today, began to find actually, just how tired you are. We work long, long days and we stay up late, late at night. And we get so excited about faster phones and faster computers and new devices that keep us doing something every blessed moment of the day. My husband is a computer scientist. And um, so we're very aware of everything that's faster and newer in our household. And um, he's worked for a long time. He's been associated with Xerox and printers and that kind of thing. He writes software for them. So one year he was with me at a retreat I was teaching and I was with Jack Cornfield and Jack, who was endlessly curious, said to Russell, he said, well, you know, is there a limit to how fast a printer could go? You know, can, can we just get them to go faster and faster? At that point, I think he was working on a printer that was going to print National Geographic color at 60 pages a second or something like that. I mean, it was just amazing. And Russell thought for a minute and he said, yeah, he said the point at which the paper would catch fire. <laughs> so it takes that kind of thing, doesn't it, to slow us down, to finally go, okay, we can't, we can't go any faster, the point at which things catch fire or explode or whatever. So you, as you came into Spirit Rock, you might have noticed the sign, you know, by the bridge at the beginning that says, slow down. And it's not just for the cars, you know, that's for us too, you know, slow down. And the word Vipassana we mentioned last night says, see clearly, see clearly. Take the time to go into your experience with your attention. In that story of the Buddha's waking up, you know, after he saw the person who was sick and the person who was old and the person who was dead. So then he began to practice and he did all of these different practices, great practices of concentration. And he learned a lot, but they didn't quite bring him this freedom from the suffering and the dissatisfaction that he was seeking. And then he had a memory, and he remembered. And I'll bet every, every one of you has a memory that's kind of like this, because I do. 
he was a child and he was sitting outside and he was watching his father do the ritual plowing in the garden. And he was very aware of the plowing and he was aware of the beings in the earth who might be suffering and he was just totally present, just very, very present, seeing deeply into that experience. And he realized that that kind of attention, there seemed to be something there that he needed to follow. He wasn't doing anything. He was just being, just sitting there and being and giving his attention. Mary Oliver says um, in a very short poem, she says, instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. So this, this not doing, this is not about being lazy. It doesn't mean that we don't work to change the world. Compassionate and wise action actually demands that we be fully present with whatever pain and suffering is before us in order to take it in, because sometimes that's what we need to do to even be inspired to do anything. We have to be present with it, to take it in. And then out of taking it in, out of the quivering of the heart that sometimes comes when we see that kind of pain and suffering, then we can act skillfully. So it's that place of learning to rest in silence, to wait, to be still, so that we can indeed see clearly. And out of that stillness, out of that place of, of attention is where we liberate the heart and the mind. When you can rest in stillness with something, often, it's really quite interesting, often the wisdom needed for whatever the situation is will arise on its own. There's not any way you can make this happen. So please, don't spend the next three days of this retreat, three, four days, trying to make wisdom or insight arise. How can I make it come? You can't make it come. All you can do is do the practice and create the conditions, the conditions of quiet and attention so that then it has a chance to arise on its own. There is so much suffering in our world. Our world is filled with all kinds of agony and pain, the pain of many, many people who are caught in terrible situations, the pain of many, many creatures who are suffering largely because of the things that we have done, and the pain of the earth itself. This world needs the best nursing that we can give it. It needs us to learn how not to do so that we can then act very, very skillfully. And so not doing here is a training in being present, a training in not doing so that you can make that next step of acting compassionately.
There's a short poem by James Charlton called Best Spiritual Practice. And he says, Best spiritual practice is to drop the word best, the word spiritual, the word practice, is to re-enter your own garden, find each flower turned to the light. So then, there's nothing to do, and then there's nowhere to go. Some time ago at one of these retreats, I went out, and there on the bulletin board over where the signs are for you, somebody had posted a sign. It said, do not improve. (laughs) Great, do not improve. So I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would love to. Because how many came here thinking maybe you would improve, right? You know, often we do. We come here, someone said to you, learn how to meditate, you'll be more relaxed. Or learn how to meditate, you'll be healthier. Or learn how to meditate, you'll be more centered, or more quiet, or more calm, or more enlightened. You know, wake up a bit, it would be really helpful. And so that's what we're hoping, is that we're going to improve, right? And so in this instruction, we're really invited to let go of all of the striving to get somewhere. And I am here to tell you, retreats with agendas to get somewhere are a sure recipe for suffering. Absolutely. You will suffer. You can try it if you'd like. Go ahead. But I would consider taking my advice if I were you. The most difficult retreat I ever sat was some years ago. I was going to IMS, the center on the East Coast, for six weeks, and I wanted to do concentration practice. And I was going to get concentrated. And there was a meeting here at Spirit Rock just days before I went. And people said, oh, it's so wonderful. You're going to go to this retreat. You'll go up and down into all these absorption states. And you'll just love it. And you'll be so happy, you know. And I thought, yes, I'm going to get there. And so I got to IMS and I went right to work. I thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't, actually. But I was determined to get somewhere. And I can tell you that I had six really uncomfortable, unhappy weeks. I learned a lot, but I suffered enormously. So, you know, don't do it. What we seek, actually, is right here. You don't have to go anywhere. Like one of the great medieval mystics, a woman whose name was Hadowidge, said, you who want knowledge Seek the oneness within. There you will find the clear mirror already waiting. Already there. The present moment is the place of awakening. It's the place of the ending of suffering. Our good friend Ajahn Sumedho says, now is the knowing. You don't know in the future. You don't know in the past. Knowing is now. Awareness is now. And there are so many mythic stories. If you think about it, probably most of you know one, you know, where the hero or the heroine goes out on this quest and they seek and they go up mountains and into caves and battle dragons and find the princess and loser and one thing and another happens. And finally, in the end, they come to the treasure 
and the treasure is sewn into the hem of their garment or it's buried in their backyard or in one story that I particularly like, a man who went seeking for the pile of jewels and they were supposed to be in this far distant country at a very specific address and he journeyed and journeyed. He finally got to this very distant country. This was before you could just get on an airplane and do it. And he went to the address and he said, I've come to claim my treasure. And the person at the house said, that's funny, I had a dream that there, the treasure was under a bed in a house that was owned by a man who looks just like you. So he'd come all that way to be told that the treasure was in his home. But, but all of the stories also include that time of seeking. That seems to be part of the bargain. We have to go out, we have to search before we can find what's in our own backyard. Freedom or liberation is not something or some place that you get or that you get to. It's available here. And the art of practice is to find it in this present moment. It's a realized, not arrived at. There's a Tibetan instruction that says, look within your own mind. There's a Zen story where the student says to the teacher, teach me. And the teacher says, have you eaten your soup? And the Zen teacher, and the uh, the teacher says, have you eaten your soup? And the student says, yes. And then the teacher says, wash your bowl. Be here, be in this present moment. So while you're here at Spirit Rock, you can practice this. You can be here. You're not going anywhere. Your cars are down there. If you're really lucky, your car's hemmed in, so you can't go, you really know you're not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. Hopefully, you've turned off your cell phones and put them away or given them to the managers, better yet. Don't be tempted by them. Let it go. Email and Facebook will wait. And you've been invited to be contented with what is, not hoping for a better moment to get to. You know, the next sit will be better. Tomorrow will be better. Be here with whatever here is. It's always that question, where is the freedom in this moment, with these knees, with this aching back? And you're invited to give up over and over and over again. Give up getting anywhere and just be here. Here is one of the best mantras you can have for the retreat. Sometimes when I talk about this, I think of my grandson, He's a little older now, but when he was little, sometimes he'd come tearing into the room, you know, this little four-year-old, and he'd put his hands on his hips, and he'd look around and he'd say, what's going on in here? I think he probably got it from his mother. It sort of sounds motherish, doesn't it? But that's a great question. You know, you can put your hands on your hips and look inside yourself and go, what's going on in here? And then get curious and interested, because that's where it's, you're going to find something. Who knows? what you might find. Who knows what you might observe when you give your attention to the moment. Here's a poem from Lisa Muller. I'm just going to read the first few lines. It's called, What the Dog Perhaps Hears. She says, If an inaudible whistle blown between our lips can send him home to us, 
then silence is perhaps the sound of spiders breathing and roots mining the earth. It may be asparagus heaving headfirst into the light and the long brown sound of cracked cups when it comes. So listen and pay attention. You don't know what you're going to hear. And when you're here, not going anywhere, this is the chance to explore the geography of suffering and liberation. You can begin to see, oh, if I go there, I suffer. If I stay here or do this, I don't suffer. And to begin to see that for yourself. I was sitting this morning at home before I came over here for just a little bit. And my mind kicked into a particular piece of soap opera that I've got going right now. And I was stewing along, and all of a sudden I went, wait a minute, this is suffering. This is soap opera. It's not true. I'm making it up out of whole cloth. I don't have to go there. If I bring the mind back, and I'm just with the breath and the body, once again, I'm not suffering. And that's, we learn that when we practice it here at a retreat like this. All of the teachings that you will hear this week are instructions for the investigation of your own heart and mind. Where is the suffering? And look and notice, where is the freedom? Jack likes to do an exercise sometimes at the ends of retreats where he has people imagine, you know, that the the Buddha takes their body and then walks around in their lives. And then the question is, you know, the Buddha seems to know in those visualizations what to do that's skillful. So that's really pointing to the notion that we each one of us have that awake place in us when we try to find it. You, in fact, are the Buddha. You have the ability to wake up in this moment. From Hakuen he says, this very place is the lotus land of beauty, this very body, the body of the Buddha. So then in the last piece, the last part of these instructions, Buddha Dasa says there is no one to be. And this is, you know, in some ways this is the hard one to swallow. Like there's no one to be. Being someone is important, you know. We all try to be someone. You all know who you are. And you all have lots of stories about yourselves and lots of descriptions. We could talk for a long time finding out about each other. And you've all done all of the things to improve that we've already talked about. You've done the exercise and the therapy and you've gone to the gym and you've changed your diet and you've even taken up meditation and you've tried to improve the self. You know, it's what we do. Or again, to go back to this grandson, you know, he arrived on the planet nearly 12 years ago now. And so then, you know, he was just this little lump. You know, he's about this long. He's pretty cute, but... You know, he didn't have much personality. He was a baby, you know. He was sort of just full of babiness. And then gradually he became a charming and lively and mischievous little boy. And now at nearly 12, he's moving towards adolescence. That's interesting. And there's plenty of personality now. There's plenty of personality that's developed. There's lots of being a who. It's really interesting to watch the personality form in a child as they grow. 
So each of you has arrived at this retreat laden down with your personalities. From Virginia Adair, she says, when I first floundered in to a, a retreat, she's a retreat poem actually, when I first floundered in, no one knew, we, knew me, not even myself, staggering under an old trunk crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the potluck supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. So we all have our trunks full of stories, you know, those quizzes with Fs and failures and the food that people didn't eat. So it's really an interesting question to think about. Do you get tired of your own personality? Do you ever get tired of your own personality? Do you have moments when the same old neurotic behavior comes around one more time and there you are doing it again, whatever it is, with your child or your boss or your Aunt Bessie or your partner, and if you haven't thought about it, you might watch yourself, particularly during holiday times, since we're coming up on that. You know, holiday times are a great time to see where you may still have some personality issues. Several years ago now, 10 years ago almost, I traveled with my father to Spain and we, went, we were going, going on an elder hostel trip. So at that point I was the sweet young thing on the elder hostel trip. I didn't really qualify, but I was with him. And, um, you know, it was a group of people traveling around. You know how those things are. There's people who are fun and interesting, and there's always a couple of people who are a little bit difficult. And So we were having dinner. It was one of these time, rare times when we were all sitting kind of at one long table, and there were these different things. And one man uh, who took up some space announced that he thought that I, me, Mary Grace Orr, was difficult. One of the harder to deal with people on the trip. This was not quite what I expected to hear over a dinner conversation. But you know, I was so grateful for the practice. In some r- moment of non-reactivity and sanity, I looked at him and I said, you know, I find her pretty hard myself. <laughs> And he looked at me, and he laughed, and we actually became friends after that, you know? That, that sometimes when we can acknowledge how difficult our personality is, the other people who have problems with it kind of think, oh, okay, that maybe that's, it's not so desperate after all. It's not a lost cause. So, no, but no one to be... That sounds a little scary, actually, sometimes. Like, what does this mean, no one to be? You know, am I going to go poof, and I just won't be there? And it's, it's part of the core teachings in Buddhism, that there is no solid, separate, and permanent self. And the Buddha says, trying to figure out kind of, you know, the ultimate nature of our being, it's too big of a question. You can't really think it, and you can't figure out where you came from, or all of that. He says, like, sometimes we get a poisoned arrow stuck in us and then we want to know, you know, who made the arrow and where did the feathers come from and who shot it. And he said, just pull the arrow out. 
So what he's really interesting is, interested in is where this notion of self actually helps to create suffering, does create suffering. Our monk friends every day have this amazing chant where they chant, body is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self. <laughs> What's left? There isn't anything left. Selfing causes problems. Any place where we make I or me or mine central, we create suffering. And you can watch that while you're here. Notice, when it gets to be about me or about mine, then you're likely to be suffering. Now, it's really important to say, you do need a conventional self, a sense of self. It's helpful to know your zip code and where you are and where you live and to have some sense of boundaries. All of those in the time and space world are useful. But it's also useful to know that they're very relative and there's a way in which the selfing thing needs to be let go of. So here in the silence we often become kind of intimate with ourselves and we certainly become intimate with the burdens that we carry. So for some of you, you might be becoming intimate with what comes, what's happening on the cushion, the body stuff that takes up a lot of space, the knees and the back. Some of you may be sitting there mm, stressing out over how can you be the best meditation student in the group? How can you have the best walk, you know, can you be the best walker back and forth? You know, or can you sit the stillest? Can you be the quietest person in your neighborhood or sit the straightest? Or can you be the one who asks the best questions? And this might be quite subtle. You know, it's not necessarily a really big thing, but you can begin to see that tendency when we pay attention. Or some, some of you may identify with a particular instruction or form of practice that maybe you did someplace else or with other teachers. You know, I learned to walk this way, not that way. Or I learned how to follow the breath this way and not that way. So if you find yourself as the re- at, at the retreat beginning to resist some of the instructions, you know, I don't do that. That's, that's actually a clue that you're holding on to some sense of self. And, you know, there you are busy being someone instead of experimenting and using the instructions to investigate the heart and the mind. I resisted for a long time at retreats, slowing down. I didn't get why you had to slow down. I didn't think I needed to slow down. So I didn't slow down. You began to hear what was going on in there. And after a while I thought, wait a minute, you know, the instructions are for everybody. It's not, nobody, there were no teachers sitting up in front saying, all of you slow down, but Mary Grace or you don't have to slow down. You know, but that was how I was holding it in a very interesting way. It was not very helpful. Any place where we hold on and we say things like, I am a person who is likely to be a place where we're identified and a place where self is well established. So what's helpful to remember on the retreat is no one's watching. No one's watching, remember? We're not making much eye contact. So people aren't even looking around very much. No one's watching you, except yourself. And there's no need 
while you're here to be anyone. Isn't that great? You hardly need your name other than to find out where you are on interview lists or to look for notes, you know. You don't need to be you. You don't need to be a student or a doctor or a teacher or an architect or unemployed or getting a divorce or sick or any of those things. That's not what matters here. And most of us don't know that about you. Most of us know nothing whatsoever about you. And you can experiment then with dropping that out of the equation of just being the walking or the hearing or the itching or the breathing or the sitting. Being awake. Not having to be you. The personality, no matter how much we spiff it up with meditation, education, therapy, all of those things, the personality is not what wakes up. It's temporary, it's on loan for a while, and it will dissolve in the end. Any of you who have been around older people who, as they move towards the end of their lives, possibly someone with Alzheimer's or dementia, we get to see that happen before the body actually goes. Remember my my mother, as she, she was having a series of little strokes before she died, and piece by piece her personality dropped off. She became, she became much more loving, actually, than she'd ever been. She loved to say things like, I love you, which I never heard growing up. And in the very end, her, she was a smoker, a die-hard smoker all her life. She forgot to smoke. It just fell off one day. It wasn't there. It was astounding. It's like, what happened? was such an ingrained habit and part of her personality. There's no, you know, there's what we can play with, with the personality not being there, the self not being so solid. David Wagoner says, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers, I've made this place around you. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. We are part of a forest lineage of practice here, the Thai and Burmese forest lineage. And so here we are, and we have forest, and you can practice in the forest. You can walk there and sit there for a bit and be in the forest and forget the who. You know, just seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mental objects, just the awareness. Let being in the forest be what there is. Let it inform you. I had a yoga teacher once who every now and then we would be in some interesting posture or other and then she would say, let go of anything extra. I thought it was a great instruction and then after a while I realized that what she meant was I had to let go of me in order to really move into the posture. 
You don't have to be anyone for a few days. You have almost no place to go. You have very little to do. We really invite you to enter this very blessed space and to set aside all the burdens of doings and goings and personality and notice what happens when you set them aside. You know, that perhaps there will be some moments when there's no greed or hatred or delusion, moments of contentment with what is, moments of freedom. So here's a final poem from Galway Canal. He says, Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So let's breathe together. Just sit just as you are. You don't have to move. We'll just breathe for a minute. So thank you so much for listening. And now there's walking um, for just a little bit more than half an hour until the last sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.